We left on a little bit of a cliffhanger, did we not? Uh, Stephen, appointed by the, the church to look after the widows and take care of the food, has been doing so much good that he has been attracting people to the cause of Christ. He has become a center of heaven. And that's very attractive when, when the world sees that, when they see the love, when they see the sacrifice, the giving, they come to that, they react to that, as would you. So that's caused a problem because the Sanhedrin, the religious and secular leaders were not happy with people being pulled to this new movement with Christ as its center. So <clears throat> they arrest him, <clears throat> they call him in, they bring him uh, to account and they're going to probably do to him what they've done to others like Peter and John, you know, order them, flog them, jail them repeatedly. But Stephen takes it a different direction and it throws a reaction out there, which will have ripples and waves throughout the rest of the New Testament, the time in which it is written. He stood up before the Sanhedrin and he has started what is one of the longest sermons in the New Testament. There are those that would argue that as a sustained sermon, it's, it's in the top three. If you add um, Christ with his Sermon on the Mount, which I think you have to do, and then Paul's treatise in Romans 14 and 15, Stephen lays out the history of the Jews. And he is a Jew, he's a proud member of the Jewish people. And he tells their story this chapter is worth reading again and again just to get an answer to the question. If God was still going to have a sermon, and that sermon, he wanted the minister to summarize the movement of God and his chosen people throughout 1,500 years or more, what would it look like? It would look like Acts 7. And also I think for ministers, it's a good thing to go look at this because of how brief he kept it. You don't really need sermons of an hour and an hour and a half. And in the old days, uh, colonial days in America, but also in some of the reformed and Puritan traditions in England and the Presbyterians in Scotland, sermons could go for hours. Not always inappropriate. Sometimes people need to be caught up on the whole big picture or the like. But how brief, concise, and there's not a wasted word in chapter 7. Now we left him at chapter 7 and verse 10 when the famine strikes the people and now they're driven to Egypt where they find Joseph who was rejected, who is there to save them. That is a theme that you will see if you look. And you really need to look at themes, what words are said. Think of this. Uh, a few decades ago, Schindler's List was the most popular movie worldwide, and rightly so. There was a particular thing that Spielberg did in the movie. When he wanted you to notice something, he would put, uh, put it in red. A little girl with a red dress. That drew your attention and brought you back from the this is just a movie I'm watching to a new place of these are real people. So when you find these little markers in history or in sermons, pay attention to them. Look at them. And here we have uh, Joseph. They were jealous of Joseph. The patriarchs did, you know, they wondered about Joseph. They, 
the uh, Egyptians were upset at him, you know, his brothers were upset at him, but he rejected becomes the one who saves Israel. And then as a verse 17 comes, time comes near for God to, to um, keep his promise to Abraham. So as they grew, God pulls them out of Egypt by the use of Moses. Moses, a hero who was rejected. Now, a lot of people forget that first little movement is so very important. When Moses, who has always realized he was a Jew, always knew he was brothers to those that were enslaved. I've seen the movies where he suddenly finds out and he's horrified. No, he knew it from day one. He had had enough. He was in position of power. He could do something to change their situation. And he sees a slave master, one of the uh, underling flunkies whose job it was to keep everybody in line, beating a Hebrew. And Moses steps in, one who has been raised in a royal court, and strikes the man and kills him. He expects the people to say, thank you, now that you're so highly placed, save us. But they don't. They reject him. You know, it, it could be worse, you know. If we rise with you, what they could make our lives even worse. So what if we just tell on you and tell everybody that you're the guy that killed him? So rejected, he runs. He was, we go all the way down. Um, after 40 years had passed, an angel appears to Moses in the desert and says, go back. This, verse 35, this same Moses who they rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge over us? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. He led them through Egypt, he did wonders and miraculous signs, led them through the Red Sea. There is that pattern in this sermon because there was a pattern in history. There was a pattern in their own story of God approaching God offering a deliverer, them rejecting the deliverer, everything going sideways and pear-shaped, God pulling them out of the ditch and offering them a deliverer, and them rejecting the deliverer. There's a great little viral video out there that if you just type into YouTube search box, the, the sheep that keeps going back in the ditch, there's a sheep that's caught in a ditch. We're going to show it at our safe harbor on one of these lessons very, very soon. Uh, not here, but rather on, on a Sunday morning lesson. The, uh, they work hard. Men go in and they, they stick their arm, they're up to their shoulders, grunting and pulling and grunting, and they finally get this sheep out, safely set it on the road. And it turns around, leaps, and jumps right back down in. And that's the story. That's the story. Well, Moses, who told the Israelites, God will send you another prophet like me from your assembly. Verse 39, but our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and then their hearts turned back to Egypt. Now, we don't have any records of any of them actually turning around and saying, you know, we really preferred Egypt and just leaving. Even though there were Jewish settlements in Egypt from time immemorial, you know, the um, Elephantine Island and several other groups that for hundreds and hundreds of years were known as Jewish colonies. 
We don't know of anybody who turned around physically and walked back away from Moses, but in their hearts, they were already back there. Now, where are you in your heart? Um, this, is, this is why God tells us to protect our heart. Because physically, we can still be in the same room with somebody, but in our heart, we've given up, we've gone away. God says, watch your heart. They've gone back to Egypt. They rejected it. They form an idol of a calf. We know these stories. And then verse 44, our forefathers had the, the tabernacle. They had this concrete, real thing they could touch. Uh, concrete in being real, it wasn't made of concrete. Uh, this representation of the house of God. But they also had the pillar of cloud. They also had the pillar of fire. They had the evident presence of God always with them. Joshua, uh, up to the time of David, and then here comes Solomon, and they build the temple. However, verse 48, he said, and this is, this is kind of, I don't want to become too wordy here. The temple was a, a tremendous blessing, but it had a big downside. The Bible says, and it always has says, that God does not dwell in houses made with man, man's hands. However, God demanded a house made by man. And this house was a meeting place of God and man. It was, he was not limited to the premises. He was God, he was everywhere. But if you wanted to meet God and have your sins forgiven and, and make your sacrifices, have the priest implore for you, the temple was where you had to be. So Solomon made the, the temple and what they do? They immediately took over the temple. And of course, temple was destroyed, another one was built, all of these stories are there. But they took over control of the temple. Instead of as, as a place to meet God, it was a place where you had to come meet the priest, do what the priests say, we'll change your money, we'll do this, we'll decide what's an acceptable sacrifice and what isn't. We'll decide who comes in and uh, we, in league with the political leaders of the day, be they uh, Jewish for a brief time, or they're Greeks or they're Romans, we'll decide a rota of who's priesthood. It became a political religious monstrosity. It became a stumbling block. Therefore, Stephen looks at these high and mighty and saying, you are children of all of the men who made every one of these mistakes, who rejected everyone God sent. And he wraps it up like this, starting in verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. All right, let's, let's explain the situation. Circumcision is the removal of the foreskin from the male sexual member. Uh, I've had a lot of people ask me, well, why? And, and we, can, we can really guess why. Um, it was a matter of important cleanliness back in the day without handy water and soap available. And from what we understand, and I'm aware these records are disputed, but what, from what we can understand, uh, work of Robert McMullen and others, there was less uterine cancer and other diseases in women because of the circumcision 
that men went through. And by the way, Muslims circumcise uh, a lot, many members of many different communities, faith groups, um, or ethnic groups still circumcise for the same reason, and that's cleanliness. However, you don't circumcise ears and hearts. And what, so what is he talking about here? Oh, by the way, the other, the other reason they may have been circumcised is the one I, I actually kind of like better. Um, I believe in a cleanliness one. I think, yes, yeah, sure. But also, uh, I was in a Bible class once, have to tell you the story. And I wasn't teaching it. I was just sitting there, just visiting that church. But people knew who I was, you know, can't avoid that. The teacher was doing a fine job. And then one lady asked, well, how come the men had to get circumcised and the women didn't have to do anything? Well, if you've read the Old Testament, there's a lot the women had to do. But I understood the import, so did the teacher, and the teacher began to, to fluster around a bit because that's an odd question. You're, you're not expecting that one uh, when you're eating your Cheerios on Sunday morning. So um, he's going, well, um, I, and he talked a little bit about cleanliness. And female circumcision does exist, by the way, but it has nothing to do with cleanliness. It is the removal of uh, the part of the human anatomy for women, let's just say, which gives them the greatest pleasure. It is designed to keep women from being promiscuous or enjoying sex. It's brutal, it's horrible, it's evil. It has no relationship to what God called circumcision. So there you are. Anyway, back to here. Finally, the teacher looked over at me and he said, uh, Brother Mead, we're glad to have you here. Would you like to take this? And I said, well, I said, look around the room. There are more women in this room than there are men. Most churches will have far more women than they have men. Men get distracted. You know, women can focus a lot better than men and men get distracted and they can look at you and say, sincerely, with all their heart, you know, I love you, you are beautiful, you're the best person in the world, my focus is on, wait, hey, look, red car. We get distracted. And I think God did something so that every day we'd go, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that now. Uh, we need to focus. So there you are. But uncircumcised in hearts and ears was an expression, uncircumcised hearts. Um, ears, you could have um, uncircumcised eyes. It meant that you were allowing uncleanliness. You were not cleaning your heart or your ears or your mind. You were allowing dirt and evil and sin to take root there and grow there. So that's why he says, you, you're stiff-necked, just arrogant. God does not like arrogance. Read Proverbs 6. It's number one on the list of things he hates. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Here he goes. You're just like your fathers. Before this time, he'd been referring to our fathers. It's not 100% consistent, but that was the thrust. Now it's your fathers. Why would he do that? Well, Stephen is drawing a line and declaring allegiance that his father now is God only and his Lord and master is Jesus. He's no longer following the paths of the fathers. He is following Christ. Now, does that mean the Jewish system is awful and bad and God's dropping the Jews? Not in any way. He's not talking about the commandments. He's not talking about the celebration of the different Jewish holidays. I would imagine that had Stephen lived, he would have kept all of that. 
he's talking about what they made it. A pattern of rejecting of the prophets of God, a pattern of arrogance, a pattern of refusing to hear, a pattern of self-willed life and declaring that self-willed life as righteous. You are just like your fathers. <clears throat> you always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. So not only did you kill Jesus, you killed the ones that said he was coming. And now you betrayed and murdered him. You who've received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. <clears throat> little coughing today doing fine by the way no panic I'm gonna do this though just to show you outside my office um, I'm gonna see if I can reverse the camera here there you go see that that's a tulip poplar and if you zoom in on that it has pretty little flowers little yellow flowers that kind of look like tulips and um, really pretty really pretty tree it's also deadly it's a killer tree for anybody with allergies this is Tennessee and they are amongst us now, almost like Lord of the Ring. They're ants that move about and follow us. Now, when this is said, you can, you can well imagine that the haughty, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, leaders are not best pleased. And you would be right. When they heard this, they were furious. And they gnashed their teeth at him. Not, not even sure what that looks like, but I can, um, I can understand really quickly it's a bad thing. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Wow. While they are, are coming out to physically attack him, God allows Stephen a glimpse of heaven where he's about to go. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We don't really grasp the Son of Man thing like they would have. To them, God was super, super holy. Fair enough. We're super, super not. Fair enough. But Jesus went to bridge that gap. But he did not come down and metal you know, shining from glory with massive swords and angels with swords on white horses and all the way we would have done if we were God. We would have made it quite impressive. He came down as a human individual with the most common name going. Jesus, Joshua, Joseph, those were all pretty much the same name, just variations. He took the most common name, he lived a common life, except he was righteous. And so when he looks up, Stephen looks up, he sees God, and who's right beside God? Somebody just like us, one of us, just like the song that was big in the early 80s, what, early 80s, what if God was one of us? Well, he wasn't originally, but Jesus became that. And now when he looks up, he sees him there. And that's again a blasphemy to these people who have not understood the concept and not followed the train of thought. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. 
Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. It's a plot twist. But Stephen's going to die. And he's going to die in a very vicious way. When you were stoned, people would uh, start hurting you with the stones until you were not very mobile and they were able to surround you and they'd keep hitting you with stones. Uh, people would run forward and grab the stones and rethrow them. Once you were unable to defend yourself, a rock had bru you broken your arm or hit you in a temple and you've fallen, that's when they would go and get bigger stones and start throwing them on you. And there would be kicking and there would be beating as well and you know, repeated smashes. With it. it was just brutal, absolutely brutal. You didn't want to splash and get your good church clothes dirty. Come on, we got to go to church later. So you'd take off all of that stuff. Now you wouldn't be naked. They had an undershirt on, but I'm not sure that that, um, I'm not even sure why I'm making that point. But I'm told, and I really, I want to really stress this. I keep looking at who told you and who, who told you, you know that about me. And I'm having a hard time finding a source that is really, really, really solid that says, when you lay your clothes at the feet of someone, that was an indication that person was in charge of the event, in this case, stoning. It is in so many books and it goes back so far that you know, I think it's probably true, but I've always tried to let you know when I keep asking, you know, following rivers up the mountain and then I can't find it. So there you are. But Saul is being introduced here but that's not the most important thing that I need you to get out of this before we go into chapter eight. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. So that little, people put those two things together and I think they make something of it, but I'm just not sure it's something's there. That said, um, two remarkable things that we could, we could mention, 20, I'm obvious, uh, I'm, I'm sure we could figure that out, but two remarkable things. One, he forgave the people that were killing him just as Jesus did, which makes him a better man than I. And I would hope, if I were in that situation, that I could do the same. But I've known me a long time and I'm just not really sure I can. Not unless the Holy Spirit helps me at that moment to do so. And it is obvious the Holy Spirit was here. The second big thing I want you to notice is where was Jesus again? He was at the right hand of God. Yes. Surprised anybody? I, I don't think so. But look again. What's he doing at the right hand of God? He's standing. Most of the time when we see Jesus in heaven, he's seated at the right hand of God. And the prophecies went on that he would be seated at the right hand of God. But there are a couple of circumstances in which we see him standing. Here, and when the martyrs in heaven approach the throne. Jesus stands for those who gave their life for him. Let that one just roll around in your head for a wee bit. Well, 
let's get through chapter eight, shall we? I think we can do this in the next 10 minutes. And again, this is, this is for you to study during the week, but I'm having fun. It's really important, however, that you introduce these lessons to at least one other person, that you introduce our worship, our Monday morning messages to at least one other person. We're really gonna need to double here in the next six months to a year if we're wanting to be able to keep going. Because right now, every one of our workers is working every single day. There are no days off um, because we're a very thin line. We're happy, we're enjoying the work. I've never been happier, honestly. But we would like to have a deeper bench, but that's gonna require funds to, uh, to hire people. So if you could introduce this around, that'd be helpful. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. By the way, the Romans have been cool with this. They don't care. As long as they're keeping the peace and you know, we're not, we're not getting you know, fights and riots in the city between these two groups, if one group dominates the other group, beats them up, kills them, Romans don't care. Uh, once again, we live in a, in a world, and in our, if you're living in America right now, and we're in 22 nations now, but if you're living in America, you know that there are people who act as if, if you use a wrong pronoun or if you vote for the wrong person, or I, it's just the easiest thing in the world. We're going, this, the world is horrible. You would not trade it for this world. So Paul's trying, uh, Saul's trying to destroy the church. Those who have been scattered preach the word. I find that fascinating because most of the time, something like this, those being scattered, what would you do? Duck and cover, go quietly. They preached. They were too excited about the story of Jesus to not live it and not, and by the way, preaching it, I don't think they got up on soapboxes. I think what they did is whenever they, they saw other beggars and refugees on the road and the people were hungry, they reached in and said, you know, I've got a handful here. I'll give you half a handful. What I have is yours. And when people say, why would you do that? Then they talked to them about the savior they met, the Lord. And it's that actions of love and grace and kindness. That's what brings people in. And, we, and it's not like we're tricking them. We want them to have this same happy life. All right. Uh, Philip went down to a city in Samaria. Look at that. Already, we're going to the hometown of the worst enemies of the people. Why? Because nobody's an enemy anymore. Not to us. I have people that have told me that I am their enemy. And they have written me letters where they have told me that they are my enemy. But I have nobody on the planet that I consider an enemy. Not a one. Oh, I can pray against the actions of Putin. I can pray against the actions of somebody who's leading the slaughter of innocents. Absolutely. But I have no one I would consider my enemy. Because I've learned that over the years, by the way. That was not an easy lesson for me. But I've learned it through the years. Philip goes down to the city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he did with shrieks, 
evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. There's great joy in the city. God is sending a burst of evidence to keep this thing alive as it has to run. And as it runs to keep the story going, God is sending miracles along as well. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. Ooh, that one kind of hits me. I think I've done that too. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he'd amazed them with his magic for such a long time, but when he believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were, they were baptized, both men and women. And Philip, I'm sorry, Simon himself believed and was baptized. He followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria accepted the word of God, you could almost see them going, what? That's super cool, but we would have never thought of that. They sent Philip, uh, Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They'd simply been baptized into the name of Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit upon baptism. The Holy Spirit is therefore a part of our life. He is in our life. He is the gift of the Holy Spirit. But then there are gifts of the Holy Spirit that were only given by the laying on of the apostles' hands. In reading scripture, and I am not gonna die on this hill, all right? But in reading scripture, I see where the apostles could pass on gifts of the Spirit by laying on of hands, but I don't see evidence that those who had their hands laid on them by the apostles were able to pass it on to someone else. It seems after that time to be up to God when he moves and where he moves. It's always up to God, but I think you know what I mean. Uh, I'm always willing to be retaught on this. And if you right now are a little hurt because you, you're convinced that you can do healings or that you have the gift of knowledge or that you can do some prophecy or speaking in tongues, let me make it very plain here. I am not discrediting you or attacking you in any way, shape or form. I never, never argue with somebody else's experience. What I can just tell you is my experience has not been that and I'm not expecting it from what I read. But I'm cool with you and I hope you're cool with me. Is that all right? All right, here we go. When Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and says, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive your spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. I gotta tell you, I think Peter was way over the line here. And now, unless there's some information he got that we don't get and we see no evidence of. This was rough. We all know Peter could be rough. When the, um, the first major paraphrase of scripture came out, it was called Good News for Modern Man. And I remember it well because um, 
our preachers went nuts attacking it. Oh my goodness, this, this was Satan on the move, the world was over. I don't believe that, I, that's just my experience as a, as a young boy. And I can remember this passage, they would even use it, it says it has here Peter looking at them saying, take your money and go to hell. No, that's not exactly what Peter said, but that's the gist. <laughs> and then he uses that word, perhaps God will forgive you. Perhaps? Has Peter forgotten what God's forgiven him of? Which is a lot more than wanting to do learn tricks by paying money for it. Which again, I'm, I'm trivializing it to make a point. Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said will happen to me. I hope Simon was okay. I hope he was forgiven. And I know God would forgive him, but I hope he was forgiven by the others and that he found a part to play. When they test, uh, testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. I wanted to get through the rest of the chapter, but we've hit 33 minutes and I want to wait. Let's do that next week. Share this. If you can give to us at rsafeharbor.com or through the Tithely app or post box 112 Spring Hill, Tennessee 37174 and help us build a deeper bench so that we can keep this going for the next year and a half. God bless you. Look forward to talking to you about this pretty exciting story coming up. Cheers.